Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Jared Long. Jared is an iOS developer at Victorious in Santa Monica, California an app development company that creates mobile experiences for fan communities. And he's also the founder and principal developer at the Los Angeles-based software company, Chromatic Labs. Welcome to the show, Jared. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am good. We're recording on what? Is it Sunday? It's in the morning. It's sunny outside. I can't wait to go uh, maybe for a walk a little later. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. I'm in Hollywood. Where are you? Oh, cool. I'm in uh, Marina del Rey. Nice. Yeah, I don't make it. Uh, I don't make it that way that much. But I'm actually going to be going over there to to that area more recently or more frequently now because uh, I was I wasn't scheduled or planning to announce this at any particular time. But it's just it's happening very naturally. I just got a new full time iOS developer position at a startup in Playa Vista, which is oh. near Marina del Rey. Yeah. Wow, so, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm starting Monday. I'm super excited. And uh, so I'll be over uh, in that way, um, you know, more frequently. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, we should get together. Definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff going on over in that area. So it's going yeah. to be good. Uh, where are you going to be working? The company is called Pom Pom, and they make a product called Splore. So their product studio, that's their first product. So that's the product I'll be working on. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's super cool. Awesome. Yeah. So how about you? What are you up to? Uh, yeah. So uh, I've been uh, working for full time for about a month or so um, at Victorious um, in Santa Monica. And uh, I also, in my spare time, I, uh, I'm the developer of a uh, music app called Tabular um, uh, that I released under Chromatic Labs. Yeah, I saw Tabular, uh, you know, on your website. I didn't download it yet, but it seems like a pretty complex app. I think that thing looks pretty cool. How long did it take you to make it? Uh, it took uh, a long time. It was uh, uh, about two, two and a half years um, wow. of development for the um, the Mac version, and then uh, about six months of development after that for the iPad version. Wow. Okay, so there's a Mac version too and an iPad. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say the Mac version is kind of like the the main version of of the app and then the iPad version is kind of sort of secondary to it. But um, was that your first Mac app? Yeah, it was my first experience with uh, with any kind of um, uh, Apple development at all. Wow. OK, wait, when did you release uh, Tabular on the Mac? Uh, this was early uh, 2013. Whoa. So with all this iOS stuff, you went straight to the Mac. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, so um, I was mainly interested in, um, you know, so I had started playing guitar recently um, at the time, and uh, I was really interested in, in having an, an app on, on my computer for, um, you know, organizing all the music that I played. Um, and uh, I wasn't really happy with, uh, with what was out there, so um, I decided to make that. And, uh, um, at the time, I I think uh, iOS was a, a much newer platform, and uh, it, it wasn't quite as capable as it, as it is now, and uh, so it really made sense Especially to for iPad. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it really made sense to to focus on the Mac. Okay, time. well, I want to I want to talk about that a little later. You know, your perspective as a Mac developer, an iOS developer, an iPad developer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we'll we'll wait for that. What about Victorious? What are you up to over there? Uh, yeah, so um, we built uh, an iOS and Android app that's uh, highly configurable through a backend web interface. Um, so you can customize the, uh, the look and feel of the app on the fly, um, and uh, it's a, a social app focused on communities. So. So, say if you make uh, if you make YouTube videos and and you want your own app for your fans, uh, it's really simple to set one up through through our web interface. And so, is it like a subscription? If I'm a YouTuber, I sign up for a subscription and I have access to to this app, or is it per download? Or uh, yeah, I think there's uh, some kind of like subscription model. Um, I'm okay. I'm still pretty new to the company, so I'm I'm still kind of learning how 
uh, how everything works exactly. But. No, but that sounds really cool because actually yesterday I was talking to my fiance about how one of the things that really excites me about software development is reusable code. Mm-hmm. Um, a configurable code, like you write one map view controller, let's say, and you can yeah. use it in uh, five different apps in five different ways. As long as you code your, you know, if you, as long as you architect it right, like your map just does what a map does, mm-hmm. you know, and then some some view over the map does what that view does, but it could display parks, it could display hot dogs. The map doesn't care, you know, it just it just knows it takes a view. Anyway, so this idea of configurable, that's really cool. So so it's very customizable. Like if I'm a YouTuber, I can have my app look one way or I can have it look another or do this or do that because of the way you guys architected your, you know, your, the the platform. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of taking the the concept of, of reusability to to almost the most extreme that that it can be. It's uh, wow. one app that that you can use for uh, for so many different things and you can customize it so much. What work are you doing at Victorious? Are you familiar at all with that configurability like that, that being able to do that or are you doing something different? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I, so I work on the iOS client. Um, there's uh, an Android team that makes the Android clients and uh, you know, a backend team uh, and also a, a CMS team, which is um, the team that works on the web interface for um, configuring the apps. And uh, so um, as, an, as an iOS developer, we, uh, we get the configuration data from the backends and uh, we have to hook that up to various parts of the app to uh, perform the actual customization. That is really interesting. So, so like, like I'm a user on the WYSIWYG, right, mm-hmm. on the web platform. I'm like, you know, on my CMS, I'm saying I want a photo here or I want a text field here. And that gets sent down to the app, so, you know, I, I don't know how, how often, one time or multiple mm-hmm. times a day. And the app knows how to configure itself based on the configuration data from the from the web platform. Exactly, yeah. So basically, when you first launch the app, uh, it hits uh, a particular endpoint to get a template for the app. Um, and it's just a, a giant JSON structure that uh, uh, contains all, all the information about how the app should look and feel and behave. And we use wow. that to actually uh, put the app together dynamically. Wow. Wait, so does does the app have like all the template templates already um, like kind of baked in or does it have all the pieces and it builds the template for with those pieces? Uh, it's uh, more uh, individual components. So right, right. Like components as opposed to, OK, I see he wants template A. It's not like, OK, let me load template A. It's like, let me build template A from all these components that that. Yeah, it's, it's I, kind of a, a little bit of both. So um, there's kind of a top level, uh, we call it a scaffold component. And uh, there's like two or three different kinds of scaffolds that kind of uh, determine the overall uh, UI design of the app. So you might have like a, a tab bar at the bottom or you might have like a little slide out drawer on the left or, or whatever. Um, but then uh, each of those uh screens within that scaffold uh, is customizable via components and uh, gets set up dynamically. Man, that is so cool. That is super cool. I want to, I would love to work with a a software company like that where we're building super configurable, like reusable uh, uh, software because uh, the last company I was working at, I talked to a lot of customers and when you're uh, in, in the B2B space, right? And businesses have similar problems but they want to solve them in different ways. And mm-hmm. so if you can create a solution that solves the same problem, but does it in different ways, like, you know, I want to track, uh, you know, I want to track my ice cream truck. You know, one guy wants to track his ice cream truck, right? Or, or whatever, he's serving ice cream. And then another guy is like selling pizzas and, and uses bicycles to deliver them or something, right? Like, they're essentially doing the same thing, but the specifics are different. Like if you can do that, man, it'd be so awesome. That, I would love to work at a company like that uh, some down, sometime down the line. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Or like, build software like that, I should say. Exactly, yeah. Um, I've, I've been in a lot of situations where um, I'm working for uh, somebody new and I'm, I'm building basically the exact same thing that I built somewhere else, but we need to build it again because there's not 
uh, when it was built the first time, it wasn't like built in a way that's like reusable right. uh, for, for every uh, use case and, and everybody wants it done slightly different. And um, it's uh, it, when you're kind of solving the same problems over and over again, that um, it doesn't feel great. It's, uh, it feels inefficient. I wonder if there's a development uh, paradigm like test-driven development, but it's like a reusable-driven development or something mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be interesting to try and uh, uh, create a paradigm for, for reusability. Yeah, I, and I think object-oriented design essentially is that, but it's kind of taking it to the next level, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's it, Object orientation lets you write reusable code, but it doesn't really force you to. You, have to, you still have to be disciplined about it. Right, right. Okay, so you work at Victorious, you, you know, run your uh, chromatic labs. That's a lot of really cool stuff that you're doing. How did you end up there? Uh, at Victorious or um, at... When did you uh, start programming? Uh, sure, so um, uh, I think my, my very first uh, experience with programming was through uh, web development. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I grew up with with the internet and uh, it was always fascinating to me. And uh, I remember uh, when I was really young, uh, I was on some some website about uh, the book series Animorphs and uh, I stumbled onto uh, some, some kind of developer tool in, in the browser that I was using uh, that let me edit the contents of the page. And uh, I remember dragging a, a block of text from one part of the screen to another um, and uh, I kind of panicked thinking that I'd uh, change the website for everybody. Um, and that was kind of uh, my first experience doing any kind of uh, like web development sort of uh, sort of thing. Um, so then in, uh, in junior high, I took a class called uh, Web Mastery where I actually learned about HTML and CSS. And uh, I got really interested in making websites. Um, and uh, I think my my first experience with any kind of actual programming was in high school when um, I set up a little self-hosted message board for me and my friends. Nice. Um, uh, and I tried to like customize it a little bit by editing the PHP code. Um, but I, I had no experience doing any kind of programming, so I had no idea what I was doing. I was just kind of fumbling around and sort of trying to um, guess at what things did or, or meant. Um, and uh, so I think that was my first exposure to any kind of code. Um, then uh, later I, uh, I tried to write some uh, custom UI plugins for World of Warcraft, which I think was in, in Lua. But uh, again, at that point, I, I still didn't really have any idea what I was doing, so uh, nothing really came of that. Um, and uh, that was about the extent of it until uh, I went to college. Um, my dad had uh, persuaded me to study business rather than go to uh, art school to study graphic design, which is uh, what I had thought I wanted to do. Um, so I studied business for about a year, and then I realized that uh, it wasn't really for me. So um, I kind of was looking for, for something new to do. Um, and video games were always a passion of mine growing up, and uh, I'd really enjoyed the the limited experience I'd had with uh, programming up to that point. So, um, and I, I just enjoyed computers in general. So um, I decided to switch to computer science so I could make, uh, I could make games actually. Um, and uh, my first computer science class was, uh, I think that was my first real exposure to, to programming. So what do you think it was originally that made you, you know, drag that first piece of text you know, over to the, uh, to the, maybe it was like a WYSIWYG type of type of editor. Yeah. What was it? What was drawing you? What was that? Um, I, I think I, I just had a sort of like an innate fascination with, with computers and the internet. And I just kind of wanted to know how this all worked. And, um, I, I really enjoyed kind of like just poking around the computer and like, uh, just trying out all the things that it let me do and, and uh, trying to see what it was capable of. And so I just sort of stumbled upon it. Right. 
I, I feel like I had a similar fascination, but I, I never took it to the next level. I mean, I liked using computers. I would do some basic things on them, but it wasn't until recently when I looked at this computer I had and I said, what can I do with this computer? You know, and like I can make music, I can make movies, I can write um, content on the internet, I can put videos up on YouTube, I can design stuff, mm-hmm. I can code, you know. And so it wasn't until then that I, I took it to the next level. But one thing I hear a lot from the people I interview is gaming. Gaming leads to a lot of interest in code. What do you think? Like, why is that? What do you think uh, is going on there? Um, yeah, I think that like... Uh, games are, are really interesting to kids. And uh, um, I think a lot of kids, especially in kids that grew up around the same time I did, uh, they grew up with games. It was a big part of our, our culture and um, you know, it's how we spent time with our friends and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, so I think when, when you grow up, like you, um, a lot of times you develop an interest in uh, actually making them. Yeah. I wonder what it is about people uh, like you who were gaming, but then took it to the next level. Like I, I loved games. I gamed. But for some reason, it never occurred to me like, hey, how is this made? Or I could make this. I wonder what that is. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think um, maybe it's just the uh, like, you know, I had, I had kind of a curiosity to, right. to figure out how things worked. And right. um, that was just sort of always part of my personality. So I think maybe um, my combination of uh, growing up with games and being really interested in them and and also just being a, a curious person um, sort of got me interested in, in figuring out how they worked and, and figuring out how to make them. And, and also just having, uh, you know, a drive to, um, to, uh, to be creative and, uh, um, like you, you play games as a kid and a lot of times you, um, you know, you have your ideas for, um, you know, uh, like your, your perfect game or whatever. Like you want to have your, your, your final fantasy or whatever it is. Um, right. and, uh, so that's, I think that's a big motivating factor for, for people who, um, uh, get into programming because of games. You mentioned that your dad uh, encouraged you to go, uh, not to business school, but to do a business degree in, in mm-hmm. school. Uh, and then you, you know, you kind of decided it wasn't for you. What was this in college? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And where did you end up going to, to school for your CS degree? I went to uh, Loyola Marymount University uh, here oh, in Los cool. Angeles. Oh, great. Awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, so they, they have a, a good business school. So that's where I... Um, I went to business school and then they also had a computer science program. It was a very small computer science program. There's, uh, only, uh, three other people in my class, uh, wow. in computer science. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, so after my first year of, uh, uh, of studying business, um, I just decided to switch over to computer science and, and went with that. Right. What, what did your family say to you? If you remember at all at the time when, uh, you decided to do business. You, after a year, you thought it wasn't for you. And uh, did you have a conversation with them? What did you say? And what did they say? Uh, yeah. So um, I actually decided to um, to switch without really uh, talking to my parents about it. Nice. Um, so that was kind of shocking for them. And um, my dad was kind of uh, he wasn't he wasn't very happy initially. Um, but I think ultimately he realized that you know, that's, that's what I wanted to do. And, and, uh, it ended up working out. So, so I think he's happy with, with how it, how it turned out. I'm in, or was, I guess, in in a similar situation, you know, I was sort of encouraged by my family to go to law school, become Mm -hmm. a lawyer. And I did. And I actually went through all the way, you know, and became a lawyer. And, uh, then, you know, now I'm not, and I'm actually going to, I think I might be meeting with my family today to let them know that I, you know, got this position. And it was about a year ago that I, you know, quit, quit working as a lawyer, drove Uber, you know, taught myself this stuff. And and so Mm -hmm. it's been about a year. So they, you know, my mom was kind of crying, like my son's Mm -hmm. a lawyer, but he's a taxi driver. You know, she doesn't really understand, you know? Yeah. So 
there's a lot of people out there. I meet people like this a lot at my meetup who are you know, doing one thing and want to learn, want to learn development. And I think it's really important, you know, for people to to understand that it's okay. You know, you don't have to do what you thought you were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can make that decision, and you should make that decision for yourself to you know do what feels right. What what was going on at that time then? Like, what was it about business that didn't feel right? And why to why did you go to computer science? Like, what exactly was going on through your head? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I kind of just felt like I didn't really um, fit in that well in in the business school, and um, it uh, I didn't really see how that would turn into something that I wanted to spend my life doing. Um, I did end up, um, you know, starting my own business with Chromatic Labs, but. Um, I, I wouldn't call myself a, a business person at all. Like I only have a company because it's necessary to, you know, release my own software. Um, and I, I kind of feel like it's a, a burden that, uh, I just have to deal with all that stuff. Um, so I just never really, uh, had an interest in it. And I don't think that, um, I would have been happy, uh, just, just focusing on business. Um, I think uh, a big part of it was business felt like it was what you wanted to do if your interest was making money. <laughs> but if you if your interest was in actually uh, making something, uh, then business wasn't what you wanted to do because you you wouldn't really be making something. You'd be making a business that the purpose of the business is to make money. Um, but I wanted to actually be creative and, and create things. Right. Right. I feel like in business, you are creating something, right? You are creating a business. The purpose is to make money. Sure. And you can be creative in making a business, but I I just think it's a different part of the mind. And for me, coding and yeah, coding, it's just like it, it, activates certain parts of my mind that it enjoys it. And so it's like I'm just doing something I love to do. And when you love to do something, you just want to keep doing it, right? So coding activates the creative and mental parts of my brain, stimulates it, like puts them on fire. And and you could probably get that too in business if the things you do in business, you know, respond to your brain that way. But for me, it, it, it doesn't. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think maybe maybe the difference is I like to be um, kind of focused on a much more specific uh, thing that I'm creating rather than uh, you know like managing people who are actually making the things. If that Interesting. Makes sense. Yeah, totally. Right on, right on. <laughs> <laughs> I do like to ask people though, like, what is it about coding? that you love? I mean, I just explained it for me. Uh, you know, is it just a job? Is it a passion? If it is a passion, like what is it for you? It sounds like it is a creative, uh, aspect and, uh, it's something that you like figuring out how things work. You like creating something. Uh, what else is it? Do you, do you know, have you thought about it? Like, what is it really? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I think, uh, programming is pretty unique in that it's, it's, um, it has very strong uh, components of um, both logical and creative thinking. Um, so you have to kind of combine them. And uh, that's really interesting to me. Um, I really like uh, architecting programs and, and sort of visualizing them as, as like a, a neat collection of little abstract independent parts. And uh, each one is, is kind of solving its own little problem and, and they all connect together to solve a big problem. And, and uh, when you do it right, it's I think it's beautiful. Would you consider yourself to be like a, a neat person, a neat freak, or <laughs> someone who likes organization? I am. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I did not realize, I, I don't know how to say this exactly, but I think one of the things I love about programming is how it can be so organized and nice and neat. And the more organized and nice and neat it is, the better it is. And it's like this... And I don't know. I think that's one of the things I really like about it, like object-oriented design, for instance. Yeah, just, absolutely. Um, that's uh, that's a big part of why I like programming. Um, I think I, I see um, 
kind of both sides of it with with uh, other programmers. There's there's some programmers who really like to kind of make everything really nice and 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 pretty and uh, organize everything perfectly, and then there are other programmers who um, sort of see it as a means to an end. Mm. Um, and those are kind of the more um, I call like hacker programmers. Right, who, right. Um, a lot kinda, of third party libraries. Yeah, um, they'll just do whatever it takes to, to get the job done. They don't really care about the code itself, which is fine. That's I think there's there's times when that's the better approach. Like you'll usually get something done faster um, if you take that approach. Um, with the trade off is is usually you get less maintainable code. Um, right, and you probably have to spend more time doing manual bug testing. Right. Yeah. So the, there's there's all sorts of trade offs, and um, but I see both both kinds of people and. Uh, so there's seems like there's something about programming that attracts different kinds of people. So I think different people have different uh, motivations for being interested in programming. Yeah, interesting. Well, I, I look forward to speaking. I don't know if I've spoken to a hacker yet, as you kind of described. I want to mm -hmm. hear their perspective because, uh, yeah, I just want to hear like they want to. Yeah, they just want to get the job done. I guess I know one developer that does that. He uses all these plugins and stuff, but then. My guess is he spends a lot of time uh, doing manual debugging, and that's one one thing that's leading me to want to learn about test driven development. Because my my guess is if you're writing tests, you don't have to do less. You you do less manual bug testing, mm -hmm. and it probably creates more reusable, uh, maintainable, scalable code. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very satisfying to to know that you can just press a button and then the computer will check for you. Uh, whether your code's correct or not, and you don't have to constantly be checking that all the time yourself. Yeah, that's something I'm going to be getting into really soon. I started learning a little bit about it last night, so but yeah, I want to start learning more. It sounds really interesting, and, and it kind of feeds more into the neat, nice, you know, OCD kind of thing about me. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I want to go from you're in school, college, um, at Loyola. You're doing your computer science degree, and then you did you graduate? Yeah. Okay, so you graduated, you got a job. What did you do? You worked as an, uh, a software developer. What did you do? Uh, yeah, so my first job out of, out of college was uh, doing web development, um, uh, front-end web development with JavaScript, um, uh, working on uh, medical record software um, at a very small startup in Santa Monica. Um, and uh, I had already actually started working on Tabular at the time, uh, I started that as my senior project in school. Um, so I was kind of working on that in my, my spare time uh, while doing web development as a job. And uh, I sort of gradually started to move from web development into app development because I, I realized in developing, develop, developing my app that uh, that was kind of what I wanted to focus on. So did you learn any Mac development uh, in college? Uh, not from uh, any classes or anything. I, I basically picked up a book. Uh, it was the, uh, the Big Nerd Ranch book okay. um, about Mac development. And uh, I'd never done any kind of uh, Apple developments. I had uh, um, never touched Objective-C. Um, we actually, in, 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 uh, at my school, we, we kind of barely touched on C and C++ and those kind of lower level languages uh, at all. Um, we mostly focused on uh, things like Java and uh, JavaScript and uh, Ruby and that kind of stuff. Um, so it was all very new to me, but um, I was really uh, super motivated to, to make this app. Um, so I just kind of learned it on my own and uh, I worked on it for my senior project and I got the, the core of it. Um, the core functionality was, was done in the semester where I was working on it for school. And then uh, it actually took a, a, about a year and a half after that to, um, to get it to a state where I was ready to, to release it and sell it. And you used it as your senior project? Mm-hmm. And did they, did they approve? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they encouraged kind of um, learning, learning new things on your own and, and uh, doing what was, was, what was interesting to you. They didn't really have any requirements for, for what you made. So just for a little bit of context, in terms of your non-iOS, non-Apple development um, experience, you have experience with Java, JavaScript, 
PHP, Ruby, or or mostly like JavaScript, Java, and, and Ruby. But it sounds like you did a little bit of C, C++, and stuff like that. Or get, just give us a little bit of context on like your non-Apple development related like experiences. Uh, yeah, so we we did uh, we touched on all sorts of different languages and technologies in school. We um, mostly went in depth uh, on Java and JavaScript. It was mostly Java initially, and then um, the the school kind of started to transition more into JavaScript. Um, so by the end of it, we were doing mostly uh, JavaScript and uh, kind of more web-based languages like that. Um, so like, and then you were obviously using like CSS and HTML and exactly, all that kind of yeah. stuff? Okay. Um, so uh, that was what I was mostly familiar with. Um, uh, and then with Java, I wonder, does that mean you can like maybe do Android development with Java? Uh, it's, I did Java like my first like maybe two years of, um, of computer science and then I like as we transitioned into JavaScript, I sort of stopped using it. It's been so long since I've used it that um, it, it would basically be like uh, picking it up from scratch if I picked it up now. Um, although uh, I think uh, I heard something about uh, um, Swift is going to become a, a native language on, on Android platforms soon. Right. It's really exciting. Right. And then I think there was some kind of accepted pull request for Swift running on Android, something Brian Gessiak maybe, I don't remember, something recently, like mm-hmm. some kind of Swift Android thing, besides that rumor of it being a first-class language. Um, yeah, so that's that's pretty exciting. I, um, I do, like, I'm personally mostly interested in uh, Apple platforms. Um, I've, I've found a lot of value recently in sort of specializing and focusing on, on one thing. I do think it's really important to have a, a broad knowledge base, so I think it's it's good to learn about different uh, platforms and and uh, programming languages and technologies. But um, I think once you get to a certain point, uh, it's been really helpful for me to to really focus on Swift and and really focus on Apple platforms, so right. I can really set a, sort of dive deep into them and have kind of expert level knowledge on them. Right, right. I mean, and it depends on your goals too. If you're someone that wants to, you know, maybe build your own product, and if it needs a mul- if it's a multi-platform product, maybe you need to learn web development. I find myself wanting to learn web development because I feel like not everything needs to be an app uh, or you know a Mac app or a, an iOS app. Some things just make sense to be a website, and I like the idea of being able to build build a website. Do you ever find yourself still feeling like? Do you find yourself feeling that way at all? Um, I I do feel that uh, there's a lot of things that uh, don't make sense as uh, an app or, or they don't make sense to be on a, an Apple platform. And, and of course, um, there's, there's so many people using Android that you should like be developing Android apps. But um, right. for me personally, like my, my own personal interest is in uh, Apple platforms. So I don't really have that much uh, drive personally to, um, to go back to web development or, right. or, or go to other platforms. But um, I do think that that's a a valuable and, and valid thing to do. Right, right. Yeah, I, can, I completely agree. My interest is in Apple uh, platform, but I'm hoping somehow that we can use the same development technologies, Xcode and Swift and all the different frameworks to develop web uh, web websites, web platform. You know, I don't know. I feel like maybe they're moving in that direction. I see things like iCloud.com, the DC website where they had that embedded um, map kit map, like little things like that. I'm just like thinking, man, it would be so cool if we could just use these same technologies to, to build websites because, I mean, they're not going anywhere, you know? Yeah. I don't know, but maybe not. What, what do you think? You think that they'll be that day or do you think it'll always just be JavaScript and HTML and CSS? Um, I think, well, for sure, the uh, backend development, you can already do uh, Swift right. development to some degree. Um, right. It's sort of in its early stages, but um, it's it's doable. Um, front end technologies are a little harder because, um, you're constricted by the, the browser environment. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I definitely see there being a lot of interest in it. And I think if there's enough interest then something's bound to happen. Yeah. I just imagine like some kind of wrapper around whatever we do and then it just wraps it around to whatever a web browser understands, but I don't know, maybe, yeah, maybe. There, there's a lot of, uh, um, Kind of going like the opposite way. They're going from web 
to native, right? With like React Native and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Imagine going the other way. Yeah, there's already a lot of languages that that uh, compile down to JavaScript. So um, really, yeah, there's a you know like CoffeeScript and um, okay, what's uh, Dart is one. I don't know if that's okay. still a popular thing, uh, but a couple of years ago that was um, that was kind of a big thing. I think that was Google's language um, that compiled to JavaScript, and uh, yeah, I think you could um, theoretically compile Swift down to to JavaScript. I don't, I don't really know exactly. Um, how that would work, but uh, I don't see why it wouldn't work. You mentioned server-side Swift. Have you messed with that at all? Because there's uh, one of my members, he started Full Stack Swift, the meetup group here in L.A., and he is going to be leading the charge here in L.A. Uh, shout out to Stefan on um, you know all that server-side Swift stuff. So I'm super excited to start learning that. Have you played around with it at all? A little bit, yeah. Um, so I, I recently rented a, uh, a Mac Mini server, um, and uh, I tried to set up a little Swift environment so I could um, trigger uh, little Swift scripts to do various That's awesome. things. awesome. Um, and uh, it's still definitely in its early stages. Um, okay. Uh, it's going to be a lot better once Swift 3 comes out, uh, especially once the package manager comes out. Um, that's going to be really great. I'm super excited about that. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, I haven't really um, gotten super deep into it yet. But I'm really I excited about it. Yeah, me too. I can't wait. He's gonna he's gonna have meetups where he's gonna be teaching everybody, and I'm just gonna be going there for sure and, and learning that stuff. So we kind of already got into it. I want to get into it now in more deal, detail. But before we do, I just want to do two things. I want to thank Blank Spaces down um well blank spaces has multiple co-working locations in la but uh the particular one i'm talking about is in downtown actually have a a desk work bar space there and they um host learn swift la uh we've i think we've done a couple times there twice we're going to be meeting there again and again and just thank you so much to blank spaces it means a lot to have a space a comfortable space where uh, a group like this can get together and learn and push each other forward. So thank you to Blank Spaces. And the other thing was I forgot to mention how Jared and I met. Uh, we haven't met in person, but Alex Tamoykin uh, connected us. Alex said, I need to interview Jared. So now Jared is here. Uh, you guys will recall Alex Tamoykin. He was the first person I interviewed for the Swift Coders podcast. Thank you so much to Alex. Um, you are the reason, you know, I've been able to get this far because, you know, you were awesome and you, you introduced me to so many people, et cetera. Thank you to Alex. And yeah, it was, it's great to, uh, e-meet you as we say these days, uh, Jared. <laughs> so we kind of talked a little bit about it already, but let's learn more about your experience with Swift. It came out June, 2014. When did you start learning it? Uh, yeah. So I, I started learning it, uh, immediately, like the day it was announced and the day I could download the beta. Um, I grabbed it. Um, it was, uh, it actually came at a, at a very interesting time for me. Um, there was, uh, it was, um, maybe about a year or so, a year and a half, maybe, uh, after I had released uh, tabular and I was kind of struggling to maintain it. Um, as you kind of mentioned earlier, it's a very, uh, complicated app. It's very big and I'm the only developer on it. And, uh, it was also the, project I used to learn how to write Mac and iOS software. So um, I, I had learned uh, a ton over the course of the two or three years uh, that I had been working on it. And uh, so it was kind of kind of a mess. And uh, it was also just, just really big. Um, and uh, so it was pretty difficult to, to maintain. I'd actually, uh, um, uh, more than once, I, I shipped some updates that had some really bad bugs in them. Um, like there was one that, uh, caused users to, to lose all the data on any, uh, percussion tracks that they had in their, in their music, uh, oh whenever no. they open a document. Um, and that was, that was a really bad feeling. Um, and, uh, so I, I was really concerned that, uh, I'd introduce more of those kind of bugs, um, with, with later updates. Um, and, uh when they announced Swift and kind of explained what it was and, and, and why they made it, um, it, it kind of felt like they, they designed it to directly address all the problems that I had been having, uh, with my app. Um, I think if the app had been in Swift originally, I don't think that any of the major bugs that I shipped would have ever happened. Interesting. Um, Can you give an example? 
yeah. So there was um, a couple things where, um, or like maybe like what the the language feature is that maybe is leading to that. Yeah, there's uh, um, one thing that's really nice is uh, Swift enums. Um, right. Love those things. Yeah. Uh, so I think one of the major bugs I shift was because I added a uh, case to an enum and there was some switch statement that uh, didn't handle that case and that uh, triggered some subtle uh, but uh, terrible bug. Oh no. Um, so if it was uh, Swift enum, then uh, the language wouldn't have even compiled that. Right, um, it would have said uh, you don't handle all the cases, right? Not, exactly. Switch statement is not exhaustive. Exactly. Um, and then uh, optionals are another big one. Um, the the feature in Objective-C where you can uh, send a message to nil, uh, that, uh, that was the cause of a few bugs that I had um, because uh, usually the result of, of that, if you're not expecting something to be nil, but it is, uh, is it'll just quietly stop uh, executing at that point. Um, so if you have optionals, then you're forced to handle all the cases where things could be nil or uh, you can specify that things can't be nil. So um, you avoid the possibility of, of, uh, of that happening in the first place. Um, when you were going, when you were you know, starting to learn Swift, do you remember what came uh, easy and what came difficult? I mean, you have this previous uh, you know, programming experience, uh, you have Objective-C experience, JavaScript, et cetera. Um, so what was easy, but then what was also difficult about the language? Um, yeah, so so like I said, a lot of it um, kind of felt like it was addressing problems, like specific problems that um, I was experiencing at the time. So so a lot of it actually came pretty easy to me because I was I was like so excited to to be able to um, to use those new features, and I immediately saw like the purpose and the value of them. Um, there's a couple things that that were kind of difficult. Um, generics was one of them. Um, Oh I, my gosh, <laughs> generics! Yeah, they're we, they're really we great. Just, we um, just tried learning generics at our meetup last uh, Wednesday, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and we learned that generics are hard. Generics <laughs> are hard to teach or to like show an example. <laughs> yeah, they're like in like very simple examples. They're they're pretty straightforward, but um, as soon as you start doing more complicated things with them, like uh, I found that almost all the times that you use them in the real world, uh, it's not a simple situation. Um, so, uh, that was, that was kind of difficult. I, I didn't really have that much experience with other languages that use generics. Um, cause most of my experience was with Objective-C and JavaScript. Um, so, uh, and I, so I still kind of fumble my way through them sometimes, but, um, and then, uh, I also struggled with, uh, arrays and dictionaries as value types for a while. Um, interesting. Okay. But, uh, I think it's a really great feature. I love it. But, uh, I had been so used to NSRA and NS Dictionary um, that uh, treating collections with with value semantics just didn't really come naturally to me. Um, all, all like all non class structures are value types, right? Like so, structs and enums are value types, and an array and dictionary and, and string, etc. Those are value types, or in classes are only reference types. Uh, I believe that's true. Also, um, if something's typed to a protocol, then uh, it actually could be either, unless you explicitly specify that um, it's a class-only protocol, then it's a reference type. Um, okay, so, so yeah, because I'm, I'm still kind of getting the hang of the you know value types versus reference types mm -hmm. things. So that was something that was kind of difficult for you at first. Yeah, um, but uh, like once once it sort of clicks and once uh, you see the value of it, then um, it's uh, it's one of my favorite features of the language now. So, what did you do then? Let's take for uh, generics for example. Like, what did you do to kind of overcome the the difficulty of learning it? Um, uh, honestly, I think it was just persistence and uh, continuing to to read about them. And uh, whenever I uh, came up with uh, with trouble about them, then I would. Uh, um, you know, just keep trying to, to learn about them and trying to make it work and trying to understand them. Um, but also just not being afraid to ask for help, I think is really important. Um, uh, one of the first things that uh, um, I, so I, I, when Swift came out, I, I started to convert my app uh, tabular into Swift. Um, and one of the first, first things that I converted was uh, my model layer. And uh, I was struggling to implement undo for um, some operations on an array. 
And uh, so this is the, the value semantics thing. But uh, um, I knew that it was supposed to have value semantics, but it didn't really click for me until I asked someone for help. Because um, uh, I was still trying to treat them with, uh, with reference semantics. And then uh, someone just told me to think of a Swift array the same way that you'd think of like an integer or a Boolean. And then that just caused it to click for me. Um, Interesting. Who who did you ask? Was it like a coworker, or, or was it at a meetup? Um, where, where did you like? Because some people they don't really have someone to ask. You know, they're just kind of sitting by themselves in their room trying to learn this stuff. But you know, I have this meetup, and I hopefully they can come, and they're welcome to come. Um, so, so you know, how, how did you find? I mean, maybe you were maybe you had people because you were developing software, so you were surrounded by people. Uh, I think in this case, um, this was when I was uh, I was working uh, on Chromatic Labs full time. Oh, on um, the Mac app at school. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think uh, in this particular case, I uh, I posted online about it somewhere. Um, oh wow! Okay, like exactly Stack Overflow, where. maybe. It might have been Stack Overflow. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I've ever posted a question on Stack Overflow. I want to do a answer Stack Overflow questions night for my oh, meetup where cool. we all just like look at uh, Stack Overflow questions and answer them. Yeah, that'd be great. Do you go to meetups at all? Uh, every once in a while. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, super social. Uh, I think that's probably my, my biggest uh, uh, struggle with, uh, with programming actually is, is uh, uh, I, have, I have trouble being social and getting out there and, and meeting people sometimes. So, um, and that's, I think that's very beneficial to do that. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to get better about that, but, uh, but yeah, every once in a while I'll go to a meetup. Well, I will say this, uh, someone, you know, on the outside, um, looking in at that, at the time when it was, you know, I was, it was such a blessing to be able to go to NS coders or Cocoa heads and then be inspired to create my own meetup and start my own community of people like me that were learning. And so because there were people like Lawrence Leach or, um, you know, Alex, um, uh, you know, or Ed, um, people who are, who are programmers putting themselves out there and, and helping other people, I mean, it means a lot. So it can be beneficial for you personally, but it can also be beneficial for other people for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about your uh, like interest. Uh, when we were talking offline, you were mentioning your interest in like UI, interactivity, animations, um, and code architecture. So what when we talk about that, what are we really talking about? We're talking about like UI view animation, UI kit dynamics. Uh, what, what should we look into when we want to start to add uh, more interactivity uh, and make our user interface more interesting? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff. Um, uh, UIKit is obviously the biggest um, biggest thing that you use when when you're building UIs on uh, Apple platforms or or AppKit on on the Mac. Uh, uh, I think it's very valuable to learn core animation um, to really dive deep into it, learn about CA layers, and um, learn about uh, uh, how the animation system works and and all that. You can do some really cool stuff with that. Um, uh, also, uh, layout is is something that uh, I'm I'm really interested in. Um, for for a long time, uh, I was I was very uh, opinionated about uh, doing all your layout and code, um, just uh, you know overriding the view did layout subviews in your view controller or or layout subviews in a view, and just setting all your frames manually. Um, and uh, I do think that's still a very valuable thing to do. Um, but recently I've, I've, uh, started to use more auto layout. Um, initially when auto layout came out, uh, I, uh, I was really excited about it, but, uh, the, the tools in, in interface builder, um, when auto layout first came out, they were, uh, um, they were a lot more difficult to use than, than they are now. Mm. Uh, there's, uh, this kind of weird situation where interface builder wouldn't let you, uh, ever have any constraints, uh, like invalid constraints. Um, so if you wanted to make some kind of change where you would be in sort of like uh, an intermediate state that was invalid uh, in the process of getting to a valid state, then uh, you'd, you would uh, run into situations where Interface Builder would just like start deleting constraints for you to make them valid. Um, Maybe like doing an animation or something? Uh, well, for this specifically, I'm just talking about like uh, setting up 
basic constraints oh, okay. in, in Interface Builder. Oh, um, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so... It's um, like you put a view on and you add the first constraint and the second constraint, but you're like building this collection of constraints while you're doing that. It's in an invalid state. Exactly. And, and Interface Builder's com complaining, I see. Okay. Exactly. So, so yeah, if you had conflicting constraints, then, then Interface Builder would just start deleting stuff for you. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just generally a lot harder to use. And then also, uh, they, I think they, they, they had very good intentions with their um, programmatic API, with their, their little uh, like ASCII art uh, way of creating constraints programmatically. But um, I also found that <laughs> you pretty... You mean visual format language? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> did, you, did you say Basquiat? Oh, ASCII art. Oh, ASCII art. What's like, that? Oh, it's like uh, you, you create um, like pictures with, uh, with text, basically. <gasps> That's funny. Uh, I'm laughing because I just learned visual format language like two oh, weeks ago. Nice. So uh, it's kind of fresh in my mind. Yeah. So like you're kind of uh, trying to create an image of, of what the, the layout looks like with, with text, um, which is it's a very interesting idea. But uh, um, the APIs, I think, are still a little, a little cumbersome to use. I, I didn't really enjoy using them. So um, and uh, I also was starting to move away from Interface Builder. Um, uh, one of the things that I still don't like about Interface Builder is um, it's difficult to keep your code and uh, your UI in sync. Um, sometimes you need to have, uh, or, or, or you want to have a particular value that's like defined in code that's like used throughout your app. Like maybe you have like a, a specific- um, Alpha value. Yeah that you want to use in lots of different places, but uh, Interface Builder doesn't have uh, an easy way of, of kind of... Use um, this as like the alpha value for my whole application. You can't really do that in Interface Builder. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if you have values that are defined in Interface Builder, like if you're defining constraints there, um, then all those like constant values that you're using, you have to hard code them everywhere. Um, so what are you doing now? Are you sort of doing a balance uh, between Interface Builder and code, or do you have a preferred way that you're doing it now? Yeah, so I, I still, um, in my own projects, I, uh, I actually avoid Interface Builder completely. Um, I just do everything in code. Um, when I've worked on Teams, um, most people seem to like Interface Builder, so um, it, it's always in use to some degree, so um, I sort of have to use it. Um, but, uh, there are some things that are, are definitely easier to do in interface builder. Um, so, uh, so I, I do like, like some of it. Um, but I, I'm also, uh, there, there's, um, a few, uh, Swift auto layouts, uh, libraries that people have made. Um, there's one, uh, that's just called Swift auto layout, uh, that I'm really interested in, in trying out. I haven't really gotten around to it yet, but it allows you to define your auto layout constraints in code. Um, uh, with a very nice, like concise syntax, um, right? But it's just a wrapper over the three different methods of uh, defining auto layout, right? Exactly. It's either using link uh, anchor, or it's using the initializer, or it's using visual format language. But you're just saying you don't like those APIs. Yeah, I think they're they're very uh, they're just very verbose, and right. um, uh, I also um, with a visual format language, you're losing some of the the safety you get from from Swift, uh, right? Because you're basically defining the behavior inside of a string, right? Um, right. And although and I, I just sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, uh, I just like to to maximize the the safety right. that I can get from the compiler. So I try to make everything as static as possible. Right. But I learned a couple weeks ago. Hi showed us that you can actually do string interpolation in your visual format language format string. Yeah, um, that's that's which, true. Which, which uh, I didn't know that, but you're still using strings. You know, you might miss like a pipe, or you might miss a dash, or a quote, or something like that. But yeah, and it's not it's not a huge deal in that uh, specific circumstance because generally, if you if you messed up your format and then you run the app, then uh, it's going to blow up immediately. Right, um, right. But if you get things that are caught at compile time, then uh, you don't have to go through all that process of starting up the app and getting to the point right. where it actually triggers that code. Um, it's a much quicker process. So just to be clear for those that might not know uh, what we're talking about, so you have views in your app, and those views need to, or the system needs to know, you know, its location, like where on screen that view is, and its size, you know, how big it is, how tall or wide. And uh, there's a couple different ways you can do that. And 
you can set the frame and its its size um, programmatically. And it sounds like you used to do that. Um, I'm assuming everybody did before auto layout, right? You used to calculate it every time, right? Uh, so there's before auto layout, there's a, a system called uh, springs and struts. Oh, um, interesting. Okay, which was kind of a very basic form of auto layout. Like you sort of defined uh, how the frame of a view would uh, change when the uh, the frame of its container changed. So like, okay. you would say like this view is centered within its parent view and uh, it has a constant width and height or it has like a constant uh, spacing from the edges or whatever. Um, okay. So you could do some, you, you could do a lot of layouts with that actually, but uh, um, auto layout's definitely a lot more flexible and a lot more powerful. So if you needed to do something that was more complicated, then you would have to write your own layout code, um, which a lot of people seem to not really like doing. I, I don't really mind it. I, I think it's kind of fun. But uh, well, well, for me, when I first started learning this stuff, it was it was sort of an advantage. It was a blessing that I didn't have to do it because it was one more thing in code that I had to figure out when I yeah. knew nothing about code. And so if I could build something in Interface Builder, it was like progress. You know, I was doing something and then just write a little bit of code. Um, but I also feel like there's a balance there because uh, because I didn't have to learn view programming, you know, in code, you know, auto layout or frame-based layout in code, it made it so I didn't really have to understand view programming, like, you know, about views and that they need to be laid out and they need to know their frame, et cetera, that kind of stuff. Um, because I just did an interface builder. So now I'm going back and I taught myself programmatic out of layout and I want to learn that stuff. Uh, does that make kind of, uh, some, some kind of sense? It's like a, it's like good and bad at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, it, doing stuff in interface builder does, it, it's really helpful for learning because, um, interface builder is a lot more approachable and, uh, you can sort of introduce programmatic concepts, uh, incrementally. Um, so that's pretty great. I, I do think uh, auto layout is actually it's it's a lot more complicated than um, than doing programmatic layouts because really all you're doing if you're um, implementing your layouts programmatically is you're just setting frames on views and it's it's pretty simple math to um, to calculate all that. Um, so in auto layouts, you know you have constraints that uh, they all to play nice with each other and then there's this whole system for updating constraints and then you have to animate with constraints. Um, and, uh, there's a lot to learn, but you can do them in interface builder, which, uh, I think does make it more approachable. Right. Okay. And then, yeah, just to be kind of clear, then in, you know, you could do the frame based layout and then you were talking about the string springs and struts, but then now we have the auto layout engine where we can define auto layout in code, just like you're doing it in interface builder. Everything that's happening in an interface builder is do it's actually, you know, just running some code. It's just uh, yeah. it's inspectable, I guess, maybe or interfaceable maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's there's nothing you can do in interface builder that you can't do in code. Right. So uh, I'm going to definitely start doing more of this in my meetups and encouraging people um, to 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 learn it kind of dispel this like notion that maybe it's more difficult and I want to start doing everything in code like you know i've never really created a, a table view completely in code and populated in code and registered a cell like uh, i want to start learning that stuff yeah i think even if you do prefer to use interface builder i think it's valuable to learn how that stuff works in code um it's just it's just valuable to know how those apis work and um it it kind of removes the the magic from interface builder and and i think reducing the the magic in in uh in your your projects is is actually a really valuable thing it helps you to understand how everything works so would you say learning programmatic um you know auto layout and and learning how to build your whole interface in code would that give you a better understanding to then move forward to the more advanced um, animation uh frameworks like core animation would you yeah. sort of need that as a foundation? Um, I'm not sure if I would say that you necessarily need it, um, but actually doing uh, doing your layout programmatically, um, I think it does make animating your layout easier. Okay. Um, one of the cool things about um, doing all of your layouts in uh, the view did layout subviews or layout subviews method is um, that's basically the definition of your layout. 
and um, you can animate it by, uh, so if some state changes that uh, causes the layout to be different, uh, you can change that state inside of an animation block uh, and then uh, trigger the layout method and uh, then it'll just animate from one state to another. You don't really have to do anything special for it. Um, but when you're using uh, Interface Builder and constraints, you have to like set set outlets to constraints. Um, and a lot of times, yeah. like it's difficult to name constraints. You have to start assigning names to them, and uh, you have to figure out how to modify your constraints in a way that uh, that does the animation you're looking for. Um, so it's it's a little more complicated. Well, I'm definitely going to be uh, hitting you up and picking your brain as I'm learning this stuff. I'm just starting now to uh, try to do everything programmatically. A couple meetups ago, uh, we learned auto layout, you know, in, in code, but we actually set up our window uh, in code. You know, normally <clears throat> Interface Builder does that for you with mm -hmm. your initial view controller and that little arrow, right? But we learned how to, you know, assign, create a window, in, you know, in the app delegate and assign a root view controller to it and all that stuff. And so these are like little things that we kind of take for granted when we're first learning because uh, Interface Builder does it for us. But I feel like, it's important to learn that stuff to really understand what's going on under the hood. Yeah, it's uh, it it can be intimidating at first, but I think it's uh, it's not that hard to to learn if you if you sit down and like just just try and learn it, and then you you don't really um, have to like wonder about what Interface Builder is doing. You sort of you just know. So, Jared, we've reached the hour mark, and I do want to keep talking to you. There's so much other cool stuff that uh, that we could talk about. So maybe we'll have to have you back on uh, another time. Yeah. But for now, uh, where can people contact you online? Uh, yeah, so uh, on Twitter, I'm uh, at uh, Jared2D, J-A-R-O-D-2-D. Um, I have a website, uh, JaredLong.com, J-A-R-O-D-L-O-N-G. Um, it's uh, currently down because I'm I'm actually setting up my Mac Mini server and I haven't gotten around to, to setting up the web web hosting yet. But um, hopefully by the time this airs, it'll be up. Um, and yeah, right on, Coolio. All right. So before we go, one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Uh, sure. So um, this isn't uh, really about Swift or even coding specifically, but I think it applies very well to it. Um, I don't recall who said it, but uh, the advice is basically you can learn anything if it's explained simply enough. And I think that's true. I think there's there's nothing that's known by humans that can't be learned by you if you're given the right resources and you have the motivation. And uh, so I think that's a very useful thing to keep in mind when you're trying to learn something that seems impossible. That's great. Yeah, I, I think that's, and that's really good. Yeah, and you have to just kind of seek that out, have the patience, um, give yourself the space to learn it, the believe in yourself that you can do it and, you know, find the time for a lot of people. It's just finding the time, you know, mm -hmm. but for me, when I first started learning, I just tried to do one hour a day, wherever I could find that hour. Yeah. I think if you're persistent, then there's, there's no way that you won't learn how to do what you're trying to learn. But I really like that. Like there's nothing that humans know that you cannot learn because when I first started learning, there was a lot of self-doubt, like, is this something for me? Can I do it? But I tried to never uh, put that kind of pressure on myself. Mm -hmm. It was always just like, this is interesting, and I want to learn it and see where it goes. Yeah, I, I struggled with that a lot when I was first starting out. Um, there's a lot of things that just, just seemed impossible. And I think if I uh, had, uh, had that advice, I think that would have helped me a lot. All right. Well, Jared Long, thank you so much for coming on the show today for telling us about your, you know, your journey starting programming uh, with your interest in gaming and then, you know, going to college and, you know, making a big decision and deciding, you know, not to do business school, something that your, you know, family kind of encouraged you to do and to follow your, you know, interests at the time, which was computers and computer science and more creativity. Yeah. And then becoming a web developer and then creating this Mac application for your final project and uh, now, you know, you still have it and you're working on it. And then, and, and then now you're working at one of the coolest places, it seems like, to work uh, in L.A. For, for, for developers, Victorious. Like, 
just seems like a lot of the cool community people in LA are working there. So yeah, thank you so much for, you know, coming on the show today, telling us your story. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you in the future. And maybe we can get you out uh, to come be a part of uh, what we're doing out here in LA. A lot of, a lot of cool stuff. I'm going to try to get you out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, yeah. So thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been great. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends. Go swiftly, my friends.